And the first three names that we find listed in the Roll Call of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, are Abel, Enoch, and Noah. We find their mentions in verses 4 through 7 of this chapter, which is interesting. Because the Old Testament account of Abel, well, it, it, it's mentioned in Hebrews 11 verse 4, and then the story is found in Genesis chapter 4. The mention of Enoch in Hebrews 11 is verse number 5, his account found in Genesis chapter Five And then Noah, he's mentioned in Hebrews 11, 7. You find Noah's account and the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 7 is when he gets into the ark and the flood starts. So Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of faith, the faith hall of fame. I, I would like you to remember before we get started that faith is not exclusive <laughs> to those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. These are not the only people from the Old Testament who had faith. There were other people in the Old Testament who had faith who aren't mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11. These are simply mentioned because verse 2 says they obtained a good report. And the faith they exercised is a witness. It's a testimony and it's an example to us of the truth of Hebrews 11. And that is that God rewards those who diligently seek him. That faith pleases him. Verse number 6. So, so... The, these three are the first ones that we find in the record here in Hebrews chapter 11. And then we find many more throughout the chapter. Those aren't the only people in the Old Testament who had faith. Now, we could take a good deal of time with each of these individuals and each of these particular instances that are, that are lifted out of the Old Testament and brought into Hebrews chapter 11 for our example and for our instruction, for our learning. In fact, there's a class in Bible school. You take a whole semester's worth of classes from Hebrews chapter 11. I want to try to cover Abel and Enoch and Noah, all three of those together this morning. When we get to the end of the lesson, I'll try to explain why that is. So what we're going to do is we're going to move quickly through verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, phrase by phrase, compare it with a quick look at their accounts from the Old Testament, and hopefully learn some lessons together. Verse number 4, Hebrews 11, by faith Abel, Offered unto God more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. Mark Hebrews 11. Let's go ahead and go back to Genesis chapter 4 and read that quickly together. Genesis chapter 4, you're familiar with the background, I'm sure, the story of Cain and Abel. Let's notice a couple of things from this passage in Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says in verse number 1, Genesis 4, 1, by, and, Adam knew his, and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She evidently expected that Cain was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, it was anything but. Verse number 2, she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel's a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Abel's a shepherd and Cain's a farmer. In the process of time, verse 3, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. Cain was very wroth. And his countenance fell. And you know how the rest of the chapter goes. God confronts Cain. Cain ends up murdering Abel. God confronts him. Again, the man is just unrepentant and he deals with the consequences of his sin. What was the difference? Cain and Abel, they both, they both came to God. They both 
brought an offering. Cain brought the fruit of the ground, crops, the harvest, the, the fruits of his labors. Abel brought an innocent lamb, a sheep from his flocks. God accepted Abel and his offering. God rejected Cain and his offering. And the Bible said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What was the difference between the two offerings that made all the difference? It was the faith of Abel. But that phrase in Hebrews chapter 11, it teaches us something very important that we don't necessarily find in the record of Genesis. Oftentimes the Old Testament, uh, in, in the New Testament, you can go back to the Old Testament and find more detail. Sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, you take the story and find more detail that's revealed later in the New Testament. That's the case here. When the Bible says, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, that clues us into the fact that the reason... Abel brought a lamb and was accepted by God is there must have been some type of revelation. There must have been some type of instruction. There, God must have communicated that requirement in some way, shape, or form because faith always presupposes revelation from God or a promise from God. Faith is always based on the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how did Abel offer a sacrifice by faith? That means he brought the offering God said to bring. It's not recorded in Genesis 3 or 4 exactly how he said that or when he said that or to whom he said that. But it is clear by the time we get to Hebrews 11 that the reason Abel brought the right sacrifice and the reason that God accepted the sacrifice that Abel brought is because God must have told them they all had access to the same information. How could Cain be held responsible for bringing the wrong offering if none of them had any information to go on? All right, so the fact that Abel offered by faith means that God had clued them in as to what he required and as to what he expected. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 4 again. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous okay again it wasn't the wasn't the offering that made him righteous the uh, blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins can't, couldn't make anybody perfect but the faith that Abel demonstrated in bringing the offering God counted that faith for righteousness by which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts and that's that's what is ultimately important is God bearing witness? To your righteousness. Is God testifying and saying this morning that you're righteous? When Cain brought the fruit of the ground, he thought he was doing the right thing. The offering was acceptable to him. That didn't matter. It didn't matter if Cain thought it was acceptable. It matters if God thought it was acceptable. It wouldn't have mattered if Adam and Eve thought, Oh, Cain, good job. We're proud of you for raising crops, growing crops, harvesting crops, and then giving some of those crops to God. What a good little boy. Cain, great job. I don't know that Adam and Eve said that. If they had, it wouldn't have mattered. God is the one who makes the determination as to what is acceptable and what is uh, rejected. There were probably other brothers and sisters at the time. And, 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 and we learn that when we come to the end of Genesis chapter 4, and Cain's like, uh, you know, people are going to see me. Well, what people? 
Okay, so we often assume that Cain and Abel, the first two, maybe not. So it doesn't matter what anybody else brought or didn't bring. The only thing that matters was what did God say to bring and did you bring what God said to bring and how did God say to offer it and did you offer it the way that God said? God testifying of his gifts. So what does God say this morning about me and my offerings? What does God say about me and my sacrifices? To be justified is a New Testament word that means to be declared righteous. And the kind of justification that counts is when God justifies you. A lot of people justify themselves. Just try to witness. A lot of people will declare their own righteousness. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. I'm not worried about hell. God's not going to judge me. It doesn't matter if you declare yourself to be righteous. It doesn't matter if you stand before a jury of your peers and they all agree. Yeah, it's a great guy. Yeah, she's a great girl. Of course. If God lets anybody into heaven... That person's going. You ever heard that? Well, the problem with all that is you're not going to stand before a jury of your peers on Judgment Day. We are all going to stand before God, and we need Him to say that we're righteous. And the only way for Him to say we're righteous is if we bring the right offering. If we have the right sacrifice, the innocent blood of a lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Is that the offering you're trusting? Is that the sacrifice you have brought to God? Does God say that you are righteous this morning? That's the only basis for God to testify of Abel's righteousness or our, our righteousness. And the verse goes on to say, Hebrews 11, 4, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel is still instructing us today. His testimony. He's, he's this cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. And look, our testimony is going to live on after we die, just like Abel's does. <coughs> Interestingly, not only is Abel speaking and testifying and witnessing by being included in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel is also one of the first types of Jesus Christ we come across in the Bible. You ever think about that? Genesis chapter 4, what's Abel's occupation? He's a shepherd. What does Christ call himself in John chapter 10? He's the good shepherd. What did Abel do? He brought an acceptable sacrifice to God. What did Christ do? Isaiah 53. He offered himself without spot to God. Abel was hated by his brother in Genesis chapter 4. John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own. His own received him not. And then Abel's innocent blood was shed. Picturing the Son of God that would come about 4,000 years later. So, Abel, by faith, offered an excellent sacrifice to God. Look at verse number 5, Hebrews 11. The next individual is Enoch. Fascinating Old Testament character. By faith, Enoch was translated he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Come back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Hold Hebrews 11. Did it already leave it. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. Genesis 5. 
Verse 20 says, 21 says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. Enoch lived sixty-five years and begat Methuselah. It's interesting. Uh, there are a lot of, of, of ages listed in Genesis chapter 5. And these guys were living a long time, like 900 plus years. Some people ridicule the Bible and they read that and they say, well, those years are actually lunar years, meaning there's, they're like months. Which is really incredible that Methuselah was six and a half, I'm sorry, five and a half years old when he had his first son. <laughs> if 65 years doesn't really mean 65 years, it means 65 months, then you've got a, you've got a bigger problem than people living 900 years. And this is chapter 5. And Enoch lived 65 years, begat Methuselah. Anybody remember Methuselah? Oldest guy ever lived. 969 years he lived. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. And begat sons and daughters. It is evident that something about the birth of his first child is a life-changing event for Enoch. Because it doesn't say he walked with God before he begat Methuselah. It says he walked with God after he begat begat Methuselah. He was relatively young at the time. 65 was the youngest of anybody listed in Genesis chapter 5 to have their firstborn son. But Enoch, he, 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 his wife gives birth. Enoch doesn't give birth. His wife gives birth to Methuselah. And this big event in his life, it really kind of turned his life around. That's, that's a good thing for you to allow the, the life-changing events that happen to you, if those would if those would push you in the Lord's direction, that would be a good thing. You're going to have some big days coming ahead. You're, you're going to graduate from high school one day. I hope that pushes you to walk with God. You're going you're gonna to meet somebody and eventually get married one day. I hope that pushes you to walk with God. You're going to go off to college or you're going to embark on a career. I hope that pushes you to walk with God. You're going to have your first child one day. God bless your heart. I hope that pushes you to walk with God. So what happened to Enoch? He walked with God after he got Methuselah for 300 years. Now, Methuselah's name, they say it means when he dies, it shall come. There's something, there, there's prophetic significance about Methuselah's birth. It seems like God had revealed something to Enoch when we get to Jude 1. He's He's preaching and prophesying about judgment, about the return of Christ. Methuselah's name means when he dies, it shall come. What do you think the it was that came when Methuselah died? It was the flood. Methuselah is Noah's grandfather. Great-grandfather. Grandfather. Methuselah. Lamech. Noah. All right? And when Methuselah dies... The flood comes. So, so there's, there, there, there's some type of prophetic revelation that is given to Enoch. And in Jude chapter 1, when Enoch is prophesying, he is speaking of ungodly sinners and their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. Enoch, this man who walked with God and pleased God. You understand Genesis chapter 5 leading up to Genesis chapter 6 when God destroys the entire face of the earth of the flood. Enoch is living in the midst of wickedness. Enoch walked with God. It was easy to walk with God. They were way back there with the good Genesis. That was not the case. He was living in a, in a depraved society. He was living in, among people who were so wicked that God simply wiped them off the face of the earth and started all over. It was not easy for Enoch to walk with God, but Enoch walked with God. 
for 300 years. In light of Genesis 5, 300 years doesn't seem like a long time, but forget Genesis 5. 300 years is a, well, don't forget Genesis 5, but just think about 300 years all by itself. That is a long time. And he was faithful and he was consistent in his personal devotion, his fellowship, his communion with his creator. Would to God it could be said of us, however long you end up living, that that duration of time, the summation of your life could be that he walked with God or that she walked with God. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden at the cool of the day in the evening time, God came looking for Adam and Eve so they could walk together and commune together and fellowship together. That's why he made us. And Enoch, perhaps more than anybody else, perhaps like no one else, at least to this point in history, is fulfilling his created purpose. Because Enoch is walking with God. And finally, one day, he just was not, for God took him. Preacher a long time ago said, Enoch and Lord walking along one day. Finally gets the point. God says, Enoch, my house is closer than your house. Let's just go to my house. And off Enoch steps from the face of the earth without dying... He's translated and enters into the presence of God. Now, come back to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at that verse 5 again. Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony. That he pleased God. You ever heard one of those preachers with a really exciting testimony? They, they grew up in the ghetto and they were dealing drugs by the time they were 11. And, you know, in and out of juvie 12 times before they were 16. And then, you know, someone gave them a God and they got saved. And, wow, they're serving God now. That is so cool. That's incredible. Or, you know, the person grew up in church and then hit college and just went full tilt for the world and the flesh and the devil and just like the prodigal son, they're, they're slopping around and vomit. And finally, a light bulb goes off. God gets hold of their heart. Now they're, now they're serving God. Wow, that's a cool testimony. I don't have that kind of testimony. As far as I know, none of you so far have that kind of testimony. I'm going to boring testimony. I went to church and I got saved. All right. Okay, Here, here's the kind of testimony that you want. Here's the best testimony that you could possibly have. You pleased God. You don't have to ruin your life to have a great testimony. You don't have to harbor up regrets to have a great testimony. You don't have to explore the depths of the depravity of sin have a great testimony. You know, the greatest testimony you can have is you, you did what God put you here to do. Thou art worthy, Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The most fulfillment you can have in life is to fill your purpose for being here and existing. Enoch walked with God. Enoch pleased God. The Bible says he was translated. Which brings up another interesting side point. Was Enoch better before he was translated or after he was translated? Before he's translated, he's on the earth with people, wicked ones. After he's translated, he's with God. 
for all eternity. Which is better? Before translation, after translation? After translation, right? Here, here's the argument against your King James Bible. Well, you always lose something in translation. When you translate something, it's never as good as it was before. <laughs> right? Just like that. It, everybody. <laughs> that voice. It's incredible. Now, I mean, I, I understand the argument. The translation is always inferior to the source. Whatever. But when we look up the word translate in the Bible... That'd be a good idea. Everything in the Bible that's translated is always better after it's translated than it was before it was translated. Enoch, translated these should not see death. He's in the presence of God. The kingdom of Israel is translated from the house of Saul to the house of David. Which one of those is better? David. Colossians chapter 1. We who are saved are translated from the power of darkness... Into the kingdom of his dear son. Which of those is better? Before translation, after translation. In the Bible, everything that's translated is better after it's translated than it was before. Interesting point. Another interesting point about Enoch. He stands in the Old Testament as a type of the church. He's a picture of of us. Here is a man before this cataclysmic judgment came upon the earth. He is rescued before the judgment comes. And he is taken to heaven without dying. Does that sound like anything you read about, say, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Sounds like anything you've ever heard preached about, maybe like from 1 Corinthians chapter 15? The rapture of the church when God's people are removed from the earth without death before the judgment falls. Enoch's a great picture, a great type of God's people in this present day in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now Noah, verse number 7. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Has anybody ever heard this? That the things not seen as yet was that it had never rained on the earth prior to the flood. That, that, that seems to be like typical standard, I don't know, the flashcard that you get in Sunday school when you're a little kid. There was no rain. And then God says there's a flood going to come. Well, that is based on a statement made in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to drain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground. There went up a mist from the earth, water the whole face of the ground. That is a description of day 6 of the creative week. That up until that time, there had been no rain. And in the Garden of Eden, God caused a mist to grow. By the time we get the flow, we're 2,000 years into human history. And there's this thing called the water cycle. <laughs> and a way that God designed things to work. And so the statement made from Genesis 2, it, 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 it'd be a stretch to dogmatically state that because it hadn't rained in Genesis 2, 5, that meant it never rained until the flood. We're, we're, that is never corroborated anywhere else in Scripture. There's no definitive statement made in the passage that it had never rained until the flood came. But still, nobody had ever seen anything like what God said was coming. What had not yet been seen when Noah started building the ark was the reason that Noah started building the ark. God's going to send a flood to wipe out the entire face of the earth to destroy all flesh. No one had seen anything like that before. 
No weather forecaster had predicted it. Here's the five-day forecast. Total world annihilation starting in just a week, right? In Genesis chapter 6, God came to know. He said, I, I want you to build this gigantic boat. Make it 300 cubits long. Make it 50 cubits wide. Make it 30 cubits high. It's going to be big enough for all the animals, their provisions, for your family, and really for whoever else wants to get on. Because I am going to destroy the earth with a flood. You know, when God first came to Noah and said that, according to Genesis 6 and 1 Peter 3, that was 120 years before the flood waters came. In order to be ready for the flood when it came, he had to believe what God said about the coming flood way before it was ever going to come. And that really is, in Hebrews 11, the perfect illustration of faith. Here is Noah simply taking God at his word. God said a flood's coming. A flood is coming. I haven't seen it. No, nobody's predicting it. But God said it. So I'm going to get ready by building this boat. And the Bible says, Hebrews 11, 7, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Why did Noah build there? He was afraid. He was afraid of dying in a flood. That's a good thing to be afraid of. If a flood is coming, you should be afraid of dying in it and somehow try to prevent it. Fear is a great motivator. Fear gets people to do things. Fear is a biblical motivator. Fear the Lord's beginning of knowledge. Fear the Lord's beginning of wisdom. Jesus said, fear him. Death power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Why was Noah afraid of the flood? Because he believed God when God said it was coming. Noah would not have been afraid of the flood if he didn't believe that the flood that God said was going to come was going to come. So his fear was due to the fact that he believed God, right? When I, when I grew up, I was afraid of my parents. Anybody else afraid of your parents? You should be. All right. That's, that's the way it's kind of supposed to work. I, I was afraid because I had reason to believe there would be consequences when I got caught doing what was wrong. That's why I was afraid. I believed something bad would happen to me. You know, people ought to be afraid of hell, but people aren't afraid of hell. You know why they're not afraid of hell? They just don't believe in it. Because if you believed in hell, you would be afraid of going there. Right? So fear and faith, they're not mutually exclusive. They actually complement one another nicely. They fit together perfectly, at least in this passage. So Noah, he, he moves with fear. He prepares an ark the same in his house, by the which he condemned the world, became heir of the righteous, which is by faith. Again, building the ark didn't make him righteous. The faith that caused him to build the ark, God saw the faith and counted the faith for righteousness. Because he had faith, well, it naturally resulted in building the boat. So Abel, Enoch, Noah, all acting by faith. Remember how we started Hebrews chapter 11? Verse number one says, now faith. And we, we emphasize the fact that faith is not only essential for salvation, but for every aspect of the Christian life. And that's really the picture we see. When we put the three first names together, we've got Abel, who is a type of our salvation. The, the right sacrifice being accepted 
by God. He, he, he's being declared righteous through the blood of a lamb. And after, after Abel and salvation, we've got Enoch. What does he picture? What does he teach? Communion and fellowship and walking with God. And then it moves down to Noah because he had faith in God. He did something that God told him to do. It, we go from Abel and salvation to Enoch and fellowship and then Noah and service and obedience. But all of that is contingent on by faith. Because every failure in our lives will be a failure to believe what God said in this book. And every success in our life will come down to believing what God said in this book enough for us to do it. Without faith, verse 6, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. <laughs>